0: you all. That's funny. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm lead pastor here at First Christian. We are super glad you're here with us this morning uh, in worship. Um, Thanks to the band. They do a great job. Thank you for uh, for them. Thank you to AV people who are behind the scenes doing things uh, to make this service happen as well. Thanks for them. I've been getting some grief about a lot of things lately, so I feel the need to publicly say you do a good job, well done, sorry about the text messages earlier, I mean, I'm half sorry, sorry not sorry. If you need a Bible, we've got those available for you, they're coming down the aisles, you're going to want to turn to Genesis 11 and 12 today, Genesis 11 and 12, Um, they've got Bibles, if you need a Bible because you don't have one, put your name in it, steal it, it's yours, We like to um, give away Bibles here. Um, Also, if you need the questions that go along with today's sermon and this message today, those are available. They've got those in the bulletins as well. So just find these guest services peeps there. Um, This is week one, our first week in our sermon series called Risk. Um, And it's all about how God does amazing things when our courage meets with his purpose. It's all about this idea of our courage and faith um, and risking for the sake of the gospel and for the mission moving forward are things that God meets with his purpose and his power uh, to move uh, the kingdom beyond what we could otherwise do. So um, we're going to be talking about that in the lives of people throughout scriptures and today we're going to be talking about that in Genesis 11. Uh, in the Tower of Babel, and then Genesis 12 through the faith of Abram. So I want you to turn there to Genesis 11. We're going to read the first nine verses, and we've got a lot to get to, so I want to go ahead and read that together here in Genesis 11, and then we will uh, pray and jump into some real cool stuff uh, for us today to kick off this series. Let's go ahead and read this together. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. They say this, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Lord God, we pray that you would open hearts and minds. We quiet ourselves in this moment. We steady ourselves, recentering our hearts and minds around the truth that You are God, You are Creator. And that it is in Your purposes that we find our own fulfillment. Forgive us, Lord, for, for living as if our purposes, apart from You, would bring us satisfaction and joy and contentment and peace. Reorient us, Lord to Your purpose and Your intent for creation and for our lives. We submit ourselves anew today to the authority of Your Holy Word in our lives that we would take from it instruction from You for how to live in ways that not only bring us satisfaction and, and contentment and joy, but in ways, Lord, that bring You glory and that communicate Your presence, and that You use for the sake of moving Your kingdom forward. We pray by the power of Your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, Amen. So I had a conversation um, this week um, with a couple people that has become sort of a recurring conversation I've had with a number of folks over the last number of years. And uh, we were talking about how uh, when we folks above the age of 40 to 45 or so, uh, when we were kids, we, this is one of those, when I was a kid, yeah, Yeah. go ahead and write it off, youngsters. When when I was a kid, we were allowed to go all over creation for many hours at a time while our parents had little to no idea where we actually were. Seriously, for real all nowadays, I don't let my kids go past the driveway without a police escort. <laughs> and they better have their cell phone charged at 100% if they're going just down the street. I'm only five, 45 years old, only five, 45 years old, but about 35 years ago, I remember riding my bike all by myself, All over creation for many hours at a time, and I was way out of range, not of cell phones, but my mom's voice, way out of range, and I wouldn't come back till sometimes after dinner, and they wouldn't think a thing of it. Right around the corner from my house, in fact, in Southern California was this gargantuan park, 2,000-acre park. And I would bike and I would play for hours and hours. And my parents had no idea I was alive for most of the day. Nowadays, parents have no idea where their kids are for 30 seconds. Nine on one ones getting a call, right? Like that's how it is nowadays. The whole universe must stop and find my kid. Something has changed in that time. And and there there was a time when for a kid, you know, just, A free day meant that they would leave after breakfast and come back when the sun went down for dinner. Something has changed. And I think the something that has changed is a clue for us uh, as we go into this series called Risk Here. I'm going to tell you about a story in 1975 about a psychologist who began to study kids' play zones and where they would go. It was 1975, and Dr. Roger Hart, who was a child psychologist, did this study on where children felt safe to play. And so for about two and a half years, he would follow, he would document, he would actually literally map where 86 children in this small Vermont town went and played. So he had all these maps of where these kids went and played. And he discovered that these kids had remarkable freedom in 1975. Even the four or five-year-olds were unsupervised throughout their entire neighborhood. What parents today, four and five-year-olds, I wouldn't let mine go outside of my house. He found that those in the mid-70s, once they get to about 9 or 10 years old, most of those kids had the run of the entire town. And the parents weren't worried at all. He went back just a few years ago, and he studied the children of the children he initially studied. He mapped where the children of those children were now playing And what he found was dramatically different. He said, they didn't have very far to take me because all they did was show me their own house. They never went past their own yards. What had been just in 1970s, what had been this huge circle of freedom on Dr. Hart's maps were now tiny little maps that were just their properties. Now, here's the thing with every possible measure <laughs> that he could measure, there is literally no more danger nor any crime today in that small Vermont town Vermont town, than there were 40 years ago. He says the single most important reason for the difference was clear from his interviews, both with the children and with the parents. It was fear of the world outside that narrowed the circle of these kids' lives. Now, we're not here to say, oh, we should go back to the mid-70s and let our kids roam free. Like I said, my kids ain't going nowhere, (laughs) right? But I suspect that it points out something that's a dynamic for all of us, which is this. fear is perhaps the number one thing keeping us from enjoying the satisfaction of meaningful participation in God's mission for the world. It's not that you don't have enough resources. It's not that you don't know enough. It's not your church's fault. (laughs) Sometimes it's your church's fault, perhaps. It's fear. Fear keeps us from meaningful participation in God's mission for the world. It keeps us from risking for the sake of communicating the goodness and the glory of God. Now, this was the main problem here in Genesis 11. The impulse to retract, to retreat, to hunker down. That's the story of Babel in Genesis 11. Jump in with me at Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 11, verse 1. We're going to see some contrast from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. A lot of good stuff to cover here in the text to help us simmer with this idea of learning to risk. It says this, Now the whole earth... This is mentioned five times, this phrase, the whole earth, five times in nine verses. So in case you're missing the point, we're talking about everybody. So everybody had one language and the same words, which isn't just a statement about language itself. It's also a statement here about the power of their togetherness in having one language. It's a statement of their unity of purpose and having power because they all spoke the same language. So it says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And, verse 2, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain, meaning they were looking for some place. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Which is to say, they were looking for a place to settle. So Genesis 11 Begins by pointing out that everybody spoke the same language and they began to settle together in this land of Shinar, which is probably modern day Iraq. So so people got together with the same language, put them together with the same language, with the same goal in the same place. And something's going to happen. Okay, something's going to happen. And what happened is what happens when people get together and they have the same language and they have the same purpose and their inner sinful stuff takes over. It's the story of Genesis 11. Keep reading. They said to one another, come, as in let's come together. Let's do something. Circle that word, underline that word come, because it's going to show up a lot as a contrast to God's purposes. Come, let us make bricks, which, pause, I understand, sounds like a fairly innocent plan. Let's make bricks together. There's, there's more than that going on. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, meaning in a kiln, which was kind of a new technology there. So they're sturdier than the old bricks. These are new bricks, apparently. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen is kind of an oil-based tar. It's what held the bricks together. So in the ancient Near East, kiln-fired bricks. <laughs> that were held together with this oil-based tar for mortar uh, between the bricks. That was the latest and the greatest and the coolest technology. And these people there that got together that had the same language thought we make amazing bricks (laughs) and we are really proud of our amazing bricks we can do amazing things with our cool bricks and they were very proud of it it's kind of like your annoying friend with the iPhone X okay I've got this so they've got their super cool bricks held together by oil-based tar and they say this verse 4 come ah there's that contrast word again Come, let us build ourselves, as in we're doing our own thing for ourselves, a city and a tower. It says, with its top in the heavens, all the way up to God, as a statement of our awesomeness. And here's, what they're, here's why they're building this tower and this city here. Let us make a name for ourselves, two reasons. Number one, make a name for ourselves. Second reason, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now press pause for a second here. Let's assess what's going on here. First, let it be said, some of this this building a tower thing is just about military defense. (laughs) And building a tower to see over the walls of the city is just good sense so they can protect themselves. Nothing wrong with that. That's not the problem here. There are two self-centered desires that motivate them to build this city and this tower. Look with me again at verse 4. It says, Let us make a name for ourselves, which is the first motivation of praise, of, of self-praise, praise from others. Secondly, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, which is the desire for security. So here's the problem. God had created them, had blessed them, in Genesis 1.28, Genesis 9.1, and he gave them the purpose of being fruitful, and multiplying and filling the earth. That's exactly what it says in Genesis 9.1. And instead of giving in to that purpose, <laughs> their impulse was for self and for security in a way which meant they would hunker down in outright rebellion of what God had called them to do to go fill the earth. And you can hear this awareness of rebellion in verse 4. Their disobedience against God's purposes. Look at this again. It says, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed. Someone had told them to be dispersed. And they're saying they don't want to be dispersed. So the language of humanity had already become the language of rebellion against God. In Genesis 11 here. Which is why God responds like this. Keep reading. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Because apparently the city and the tower weren't quite as big and awesome and amazing as they thought, since God, who is big and awesome and can see everything, had to come down and see it, right? It's like God was squinting to see this tower that was meant to stretch to the heavens, right? And even He still couldn't see it, which is a lesson in our most amazing towers being anthills in comparison to God. The Lord came down to see the city. He came down to see the city and the tower. Notice what they're called here, which the children of man had built. This points out two things to us here. Number one, people of God don't build self-seeking things. Children of man do. It's a basic difference in humanity for all people. Children born of flesh do stuff for flesh. (laughs) Children born of spirit and of God have a different purpose and quality. It's an outward for the sake of others kind of going that is worth hmm, risking for. We'll keep coming back to that going impulse um, throughout the rest of this passage and this series. So the first thing is, this shows us the people of God don't build self-seeking things, but children born of flesh do. And secondly, at this point in the story, it's become clear that this tower wasn't really about practical things just to see over the city walls. Uh, This tower wasn't built just to reach to God so much as it had been to actually replace God. This had become a symbol of their own identity as self-sufficient. Their identity as children of man was now on full display as a rebellion against God's purposes. So the Lord came down to see this city and tower, which the children of man had built. And uh, because he took their scheme seriously, the Lord said this, Behold, they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And then he says this, Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Let's unpack this verse a little bit here because it's a bit complicated, but we're going to help you see what it means by going back to Genesis 3. And this is going to sound a little weird at first to hear it this way, but I believe it's the point the text makes. It's how the point is made in the text. God here is pictured in verse 6 as being worried that the power of these people together who have one language and who are united in this purpose sort of hunkering down and settling for self, the power of these united people is such that, listen carefully, their power will keep them unaware of their own human limits and they will become deceived that they are like God. God's actually pictured here as worried that their own power will deceive them into believing their own hype, (laughs) which, let's be honest, real danger for all of us. Look at the end of verse 6 again. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is a parallel to the problem uh, in the garden. It's a parallel to the problem in the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned. God says this in Genesis 3, uh, verses 22 through 24. He says this, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, listen to how similar this is. Lest he reach out his hand and take out also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. He drove out the man, meaning in order... In Genesis 3, to prevent Adam and Eve living forever in their sin of self-sufficiency that would deceive them into thinking they didn't need God, listen carefully, in order to prevent Adam and Eve from living forever in their sin of self-sufficiency that would deceive them into thinking they didn't need God, God sends them out. In verse 23, He drove out the man. This is key today. God scattered Adam and Eve. He sent them away so that they could learn what they needed to learn so that they didn't think they didn't need God. Same thing here in Genesis 11. Notice how God scatters them in Genesis 11. He sends them away in what is actually an act of God's grace, just like He did in the garden. This may be new for you, but listen. God sending us as a going people to be outward so that we don't just hunger down for self is grace. Amen. It's grace. Because when you settle down into self sufficiency and control, who needs God? It's mission as mercy. Look at verse 7. Come, let us go down, and they're confused. Their language. Look at that word confused there. We'll come back to it. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. I mean, if God had just gone down and taken down the tower, they would have built another tower, right? Like they would have done something else. So something more fundamental had to be done to ensure scattering as learning what they needed to learn. So it says this, verse 7. It says He confused their language so that they may not understand one another's Speech. There's an interesting note here in the text about this word confuse and how it how it interacts with the previous word brick in verse 3. This will make sense soon, I'm hoping, so track. Brick in 3, confuse in 7. There's a bunch of cool features in the Hebrew language. These little verbal uh, clues that you can hear um, that we can't see in the English. And these verbal clues tell us about the intended meaning. So this word confused is written in exactly the opposite order as the word bricks in verse 3. Okay? Verse 3 is written a certain way. Verse 7, confused, written the other way. Tracking? A few of you are like, yeah. (laughs) Most of you are like, huh? (laughs) Here's what this means. God is unbricking what the people had bricked. This is what God has to do. This is how messed up we are. This is how badly we need to be sent on mission for the sake of God's glory. We will otherwise pervert this whole enterprise into self in a way which is the deception of control for which we will never risk and learn our lesson. Or do you believe you're that amazing? God has to unbrick what we have bricked, in a sense. So the Lord, verse 8, against their will, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building uh, the city. This is not punishment so much as it is grace. God's disciplining the people to get them back on track. And in so doing, He's directing the people back to His original intent for creation. That was modeled by him in Genesis 1, stated in Genesis 1:28, and in 9-1, where after the flood, it said, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Therefore, its name, verse 9, was called Babel, which means confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, which at this point, human language had become a language of disobedience. So God mercifully wrecks their plan. He unbricks their bricks. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God scatters the people by mixing up the language. And in so doing, he redirects their selfish desires back to his original intent. This is what God has to do in order for us to learn. We are actually dependent on him and that we cannot do it ourselves. Or did your project and plan for that being an undoing for yourself work yet? So if Genesis 11 is a picture of humankind's uh, selfish desire for praise and security used in a way that it was not about God's glory, a picture of the problem of hunkering down as a hindrance to God's mission, then Genesis 12 is a picture of the opposite. It's a picture of someone who faithfully risked and whose courage was met by God's power. And while we're not going to have much time to spend getting into the nitty-gritty of the text, look with me at uh, Genesis 12, starting in verse 1 here. There's some cool contrast between Babel and Abram, between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Jump in at verse 1, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, first word, go. As a contrast to the word, come. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land of that I will show you. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. In other words, go from everything you know and that you hold dear to the land that I haven't shown you yet, but I will show you. Abram's being asked um, not only to to move his family, um, but he's being asked to take on a new sense of identity and purpose and security in God's leading and not his own. As a contrast to Babel. This is a depend on me, Abram, one step at a time kind of mission. So look at verse 2. It says this, And if you do this, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Notice the contrast with the people of Babel who wanted to make a name for themselves. This is a name that's made great for him, not by him, but by the Lord. I will bless you and make your name great so that, here's the purpose, you will be a blessing. Go so that you will be a blessing. This, this going and this blessing and this, uh, this favor of God given to Abram thing is not for his sake. It's for the mission of God and for the sake of others to be a blessing to others. This is why we say blessed to be a blessing. This is in stark contrast to our modern uh, selfishness that is actually very much like Babel where we are under this delusion that our stuff and our blessing and our resources are for us and for our family to keep secure here. Thank you very much. So I can keep track of all those internal insecurities I don't know what to do with God says, nope, that's not how it works. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Verse 3, and in you, in other words, through you, all the families, whoa, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This has become a much bigger deal than just Abram and his family. This going thing, which marks those who follow God, this going thing has a much bigger call beyond what Abram could possibly conceive. So, verse 4, Abram went, God said, go, Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And notice how all-encompassing Abram's faith was here. He took everything, keep reading, Lot went with him, Abram's nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed, meaning he was no spring chicken. Obviously, this is an act of faith. Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions they had gathered, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, which means they took Everything. And and can you imagine, by the way, taking all your stuff, all your people, all your possessions, going from where you are at the age of 75 when you can't hire a mover or have some pod show up in front of your house. This is a big ask of an old man with a lot of stuff. So we know this isn't an act of faith. (laughs) If I'm Abram at 75, I'm going, you want me to what? I've lived here my whole life. It's a big, big ask. Keep reading. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. This is in verse five, which is 600 miles on foot at 75 years old. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place that shechem to the oak of Moreh, which is probably outside the city. And here's why. Because at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Press pause. The Canaanites were in the land, meaning other people lived where they showed up. Think about this. I'm Abram. I'm 75 years old. I've lived here my whole life. I take up everything. God says, go to this other place because I'm going to make of you a great nation. (laughs) You're going to get all this land. I go to this place, and there are people already there. This, This doesn't feel like it's working, God. This is a mission... If I'm Abram at 75 and I show up and there are canines in the land, I'm going, this is a mission I'm struggling to get behind, God. So what do you do in those mission struggle moments? We come here on Sundays and we worship. And we rededicate our hearts and minds to the mission. (laughs) We take a moment and we go, this is about God's glory, not mine. That's what Abram does. Keep reading. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram because he's gracious and he said, to your offspring I will give this land. He restates his promise and here's Abram's response of faith to recenter himself. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we begin to see this pattern here. God promises blessing. Abram worships as a response of faith and then he keeps going. Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, A on the east, and there he built, here's the worship thing again, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And this is one of my favorite verses here in this chapter. Look at this. Abram journeyed on, still going. Still going toward the Negev. He's still moving, still going, journeying on this road uh, of following the Lord. And think about what happened because of his faithfulness. We worship Jesus today because of the line of Abraham came the Messiah. so God gave us this mission of going and glorifying Him instead of hoarding for ourselves. He forces us, if we'll hear it, and He's asking us and calling us into this mission as an act of grace because of this problem on the inside when we don't go and we hunker down. We get into this false sense of security that is actually the deception that we are powerful enough that we don't need God. When we don't go, we hunker down into a false sense of security that is actually the deception that we are powerful enough that we don't need God. You see, Genesis 11 and 12 present us with two options in life. You are either becoming a child of this world hunkering down into a small-minded vision that builds for self, or you are becoming a child of God who is going on a mission that ends in your death so others might live. So the question for us is simply, what mission are you on? Whose mission are you on? What is your life building? Toward what end? Are your resources and your time and your money and your energy being used? Because if your current mission requires no risk, if your current mission requires no risk, it's not God's mission. In this series we've been saying, and we'll continue to say all all summer long, that God does amazing things when our courage meets with His purpose. If that's the case then if, not, if God's not doing the amazing thing of bringing the dead to life and you're not seeing that in your own life or in the lives of people around you, perhaps it's because your mission and purpose are still about building towers and cities for yourself. Even if your current mission requires a very carefully calculated risk, that is more about others seeing and noticing you so that you can be verified by them as a safe and good Christian, guess whose mission you're still actually on? So ask yourself today, what is God asking me to risk for the sake of His mission? You see, friends, faith and courage are responses that embrace God's promise for the future such that one works toward that future using current resources. This is big if you'll hear it. Faith and courage are responses that embrace God's promise for the future such that one works toward that future using current resources. Faith and courage about risking for the sake of God's promised future. That's the opposite of fear that hoards for a mission of self that requires you risk nothing. And the church is meant to be a place that teaches us how to be risky in following Jesus. That's why we say we're all about helping people find and follow Jesus. Sometimes helping them can feel like helping them risk. And that's why some people don't like it. That's why some people don't like us. Because we believe the call of God is that important. You sit in these seats because someone risked for the sake of the gospel for you. So church is meant to be a place where you see risk modeled, And where you learn to risk for the sake of Jesus. And finding and following Jesus means giving up previous goals of personal praise and safety so that you will follow Jesus to a cross where you die so someone else lives. That's what this is. It's learning to die to self so that someone else can live. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, please forgive us for the many ways in which we have pushed the mission of Your goodness and glory being made known to the side, to the margins, that we have rationalized away what we know is Your voice calling us to move forward for the sake of communicating the good news. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to instruct us and to teach us that we would give ourselves, Lord, to the mission of your glory. And that as we do that, as we give ourselves, as we lead uh, those we love around us to that higher calling of your goodness and glory, that You would show us peace and contentment. That we would have the reassurance that we are following Your Son Jesus to the cross where He died so that we could live. In that we are seeing around us because of our participation in the mission. Those who are going from death to life. And that we experience that for ourselves as well. So Father, we ask that You would continue to give us a vision by which we give ourselves to Your goodness and Your glory, that we would risk so that the mission would move forward. We ask this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.